Please note, every episode is someone's individual experience. One data point is not representative of everyone's time in the Air Force. Do your due diligence. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. This is episode 23 of the AFSC series, a part of the For the Zoomies podcast, and I'm your host, Andrew Cormier. Today's guest is a 1998 graduate of the Air Force Academy who went on to become a B-2 pilot. She's a command pilot with more than 2,000 flight hours and has served as an instructor and evaluator in the B-2 and T-38. She was a Lorenz Fellow at the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies, earning her PhD in Military Strategic Studies from Air University and is currently serving as the Permanent Professor and Chief Learning Officer for the Commandant of Cadets at the Air Force Academy. Ladies and gentlemen, Colonel Beth Macros. Thanks, Andrew. I appreciate you having me on your podcast. I've been getting a lot of perspectives, which doesn't have to do to do with jobs recently, which mm-hmm. I, the, the whole basis of the show is about interviewing to learn about jo- right. jobs. So that people can think more about what that might mean for mm-hmm. a career. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. But recently, I, I've been interviewing a lot of more strategic people. Like ah. uh, General Moga's episode, that wasn't exactly like F-22, like how to become a good F-22 right. pilot. Or recently, I interviewed uh, Lieutenant General uh, Gustella, yep. which was a completely Pretty air cool. power advocacy episode. It had nothing <laughs> to do with jobs, but here we are back learning about the missions of different airframes and your specialty is the B2. So to get right into it, do you think you could give a little bit background of like what brought you to the Academy in the first place? You bet. So uh, I came to the Academy. My dad's a grad. He's a 1968 grad. Uh, and so I had visited many times before. Uh, I grew up as a military brat. Um, mm particularly around flight lines. He uh, went to test pilot school and flew F-4s out at Edwards Air Force Base. So, and that's where I was born, and then we lived there multiple times. Um, so I sort of grew up around the Air Force, and by the time I got ready to go to college, I had a good friend, he was getting ready to go to the Naval Academy. So I thought, well, if you can do the Naval Academy, I could probably do the Air Force <laughs> Academy. So I really just applied here more because I thought that seemed like a challenge, an interesting challenge. Uh, and then when I got here is really when I more fell in love with flying. So I didn't, like, I'm not one of those kids that grew up thinking, oh my gosh, I just want to soar, like, in the, you know, slip the surly bonds or something like that. <laughs> I was more like around airplanes and always thought that they were really really fantastic um, but when I got here and had the opportunity to do soaring and jump and then later the the um, T3 program uh, which is the flight screening program that's when I started to really like flying if that mm-hmm. makes sense um, but I would say too I always noted that um, it is pilots that are in positions of real sort of operational power in the Air Force and that was always interesting to me so it was the pilots that often spoke and understood the bigger picture And I think that that's just true from the way that our service is set up, Mm -hmm. that often it is the operators that see that they're sort of the nexus of all the things, right? So they get to see how, you know, critical the logistics or the maintenance or the intelligence portion is, and then they go put those pieces together and then execute a mission. They're really the only ones that get to see that portion of the mission, but they Mm -hmm. see everything that happens back at the base. Um, And I, and I just, I, I was really interested in, in that kind of stuff. That's a really interesting perspective because I think a lot of people hone in on, especially nowadays, trying to get diverse leaders Mm -hmm. of like, you know, we need a maintenance CSAF or we need an intelligence, something like that. But I don't think that should discount the fact that operators have that kind of perspective that might not be 
available to other to, to other people officers, that's, yeah yeah and again it's not to um belittle any other afsc right i had the opportunity to be a deputy mission support group commander for a little while and uh, it's invaluable right like me getting to see what the civil engineers did for a, a base or the security forces com um contracting like invaluable to the mission it's just that um to understand hey why is it that we do x like why is the whole base um, exercising in this way and for the nuclear um, enterprise which is a lot of what the b2 and b52 do um, there's a lot of like why do we do this and it's hard to explain in the context of the sort of bigger strategic picture mm -hmm. the reason that we have to have security forces positioned every x number of feet or maintain weapons or fly this sortie rate or whatnot um, of course they would understand if you explained it but Sometimes it is that operators just get that opportunity more. They see it more. They see it more, mm -hmm. right? And they have to balance it. And so, again, uh, not to discredit any any career field because all of them are important. It's just a perspective, maybe. Mm -hmm. Do you think you could elaborate on the mission of the B-2? You bet. So the B-2 uniquely, right? So uh, right now we have three bombers in the bomber fleet for the U.S. So we have the B-52, the B-1, and the B-2. Um, the B-52, obviously been around for a really long time, carries the most type of weapons um, and is just an absolute workhorse, right? Um, so definitely made to fly, fly for a really long time. Some of our B-52 fleet, I don't know if you are aware, but they will be continuing to fly through the 2050s. Okay. So um, very, very impressive. All new um, insides, mm -hmm. right? Um, new engines. In fact, they, that, there was some news about that this week. So it's um, just the frame? It, it's sort of the frame and just like the, the strength of that um, ability to do long range, right? I mean, they can fly really long, long range. Um, new engines will even make that better. Um, at very high altitudes, which is important. Um, and then, yeah, the structure allows them to um, be able to carry certain weapons, both on the pylons on the wings and then internally. And I think it's really cool that our mechanical engineering project is often talking about sort of like, hey, how do you prioritize different things of an aircraft? And we talk about B-52s and what a B-52 does, because mm -hmm. I think that really opens your eyes to know they have to go long distance they have to carry heavy payloads, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. But from a cost per flying hour, they're the least expensive. Okay. Um, and, and, and that's what they do. They've been around for a really long time, and they shall be around for a really long time. Um, but they're really standoff weapons, right? So the idea with the B-52 and the B-1 is that they'll be able to stand off from some distance and then launch weapons that have the longer legs, right? And we call those standoff weapons. So think JASM, JASM-ER, just sort of like you know, hundreds of miles capability. Mm -hmm. um, or in the nuclear enterprise, they can launch air launch cruise missiles, which, you know, again, you're talking in the hundreds to, you know, around a thousand miles, but they could launch that and then leave. Um, and so that's what that platform does. So, kind of so they might not need escorts because they're... They would be far enough back. Okay. That's right. Now, again, you may decide to use them for other purposes, but that's kind of what they bring you. The B-1 can carry an incredible amount of weapons internally to itself. Um, it has a little bit of a smaller radar cross-section. Uh, obviously, it has different speeds that it can fly, and it can, and it was made to ingress at low altitudes, right? So if that was a... a sort of a TTP that we needed to use for um, some reason, for radar coverage or something, then the B-1 could do that. And it can carry 24 2,000 bombs 
internally to itself. And that's pretty impressive. Um, they have other techniques and other weaponry that they carry that's specific to them. Um, that's sort of like unique to a B1, we've, we've decided. And, and the B-52, we think, will carry uh, hypersonic. So, but both of them, for all intents and purposes, in a high, sort of like a peer, um, near peer, uh, situation, they're probably going to be standoff weapons, right? Standoff weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, or carry this, you know, some unique weapons that they can can carry that aren't in the high threat areas. The B-2 and subsequently the B-21, those are our penetrating bombers. And it's really important because um, if I'm an adversary and I want to put a really high value target for us, um, I'm not going to put it on the coast, right? Like that Maverick movie where he was like right they're right on the coast and they can get to him by f-18s like that's kind of laughable because Mm -hmm. that would be silly from an adversary's perspective i would put it deep into my country and then i would put it deep down into the ground or into a mountain or something like that right i want to protect that high value um target set and so that's what the penetrating bombers are meant to do right they need to have long legs so they can get into a country but they also need to be able to evade or take out uh integrated air defenses and then hard target defeat so things that are deeply buried, that's um, pretty unique to the B-2, to be able to get in there and then get down into the ground. So because it has specialized weapons that do that? Okay. So the MOP, the Massive Ordnance Penetrating Weapon, which is about 30,000 pound weapon, is unique to the B-2. Yeah, and that's a deep (laughs) penetrating. Yeah, and the B-2 can carry two of those. And so it holds at risk certain targets that make it very, very valuable. And then additionally, the B-52 and the B-2 have the nuclear mission, so it has that. Um, The B-2 also has some, again, each one has sort of unique characteristics the b2 can carry 80 500 pound independent so gps guided weaponry right 80 of them so um (laughs) yeah so that's pretty impressive when you think about that now that might be a target where i don't need to you know i could have a target set where i don't need to penetrate but i need to take 80 of those one pass with the b2 and i can launch those 80 out and i can hit whatever target set um, that you want so those gbu 38s can be used so again the b1 can carry 20 gbu 31s so five or two thousand pound weapons, the B two could carry eighty GBU thirty eights, which are five hundred pound. So there's there's reasons you might use them. Different combatant commanders might want to use them differently. But in general, that's the sort of standoff, stand in. That's that's the difference. That's interesting. I never, I mean, I didn't know the the differences between bomber um, capacities, but also their different missions. I just figured, oh, they have a different payload, they have different weapons, and but I didn't understand how those could be integrated into a certain mission a certain way. Yeah, but. You know, uh, you mentioned the 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 mech project of yes. the 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 B fifty two. Do you know Major Julian Gluck? No. He's he was a I think two thousand twelve grad. Okay. And he he's a B fifty two pilot. He actually just um, transitioned to the reserves to go to Harvard Business School. Nice. But he he's really involved with the grad community, like always on glorious old zoo stuff like that. And um, he he said cadets would always message him. Because he's a B fifty two pilot, question. yeah. He's like, well, like about the project, be like, hey, because how would you prioritize yeah, yeah. these things? <laughs> mechanically inclined, <laughs> but actually, they they switched it out. Now they do in me- uh, mechanical engineering, they do like a design build test project where they're like, hey, we have this um, this radical bridge. It's like intercrevice long bridge, but it's okay. supposed to be able to be deployed. Uh, like I guess similar to what the what the 
what the plan of the the B fifty two mech project is, but it's just basically you're testing a balsa wood yeah. bridge. Oh, that but, you maybe get a chance to build and then you can actually test it. Yeah, I think that's yeah. great. I just like the idea that you guys think about it from the like this is legitimately what the MAGCOM commander of Air Force Global Strike Command thinks about also. Mm-hmm. Like, do I need to worry about, you know, structural problems? Do I need to worry about payload problems? Like, th- that same thought process happens all the way up to, I'm sure, a sec def level, mm-hmm. if not higher. So. As much as I didn't like some parts of that MET class, <laughs> that, that was definitely one that I enjoyed. That's good. Um, so what does a, a sortie really look like in the in the B2, or if, if I, I only have references to fighter pilots because that's who I talk to the sure. most, but d- does the mission brief look different as well? Um, well, I would imagine they would be different just based yeah. on mission, right? So let's talk about if um, we, what is we would do, right, in, in the event of, say, having to, um, you, you know, use the weapon or use the aircraft to deliver weapons, right, for kinetic effects. So what I would say is um, the B-2, and in some cases you should consider all the strategic bombers, the three of them, can all take off and land from the U.S. So that's an opportunity, particularly in the future fight, that we need to consider because um, the 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 truth of the matter is Russia and China can reach most of our bases using ballistic missiles, right? So that's concerning. So if you're in theater, um, you have a chance that the operating facility that you're at will not exist if we were to enter into a conflict. Does that make sense? So mm-hmm. it's important we consider that, hey, that's a great tool for us, taking off and then landing back at in CONUS, right? Uh, granted, always with a tanker bridge, right? That doesn't just happen. Mm-hmm. Magic, there are uh, um, support things that have to be in place, and that for us is the tanker bridge. But um, that's really important, and that's a, a tool that we would practice. So all of the bombers practice long-duration sorties, right? So what would happen, but particularly to a B-2, um, you would, let's just say that you're the B-2 pilot, you would get put in crew rest. We'd say, Andrew, go home, get some rest, right? Come back at 3 a.m. or whatever. And then by the time you got there, um, the mission planning cell, the MPC, would have planned out a mission. We would have gotten the tanker bridge. We would have done all the coordination. And chances are you're not flying alone. So there's another aircraft, so at least two, maybe three, maybe X number of aircraft. And you would take the briefing, you know, understanding all the contingencies. Okay, if this happens, if this tanker doesn't show up, this, if this, you know, you talk to this weapons, whatever. Most of the time, because we're going to fly such long sorties, we're going to launch without knowing our actual targets. We're just ahead of the targeting cycle, but we got to get moving in that direction. And so most of the time we train to say, hey, this is what we think your targets either might be, or this is a set of targets that you might get. But we expect that midway through the flight, we're going to get new targets and we have to be prepared to brief and debrief to that. So that the what's going to get briefed can vary um, just because of the length of the sortie that's going to be. But let's say that you're going to fly, you know, somewhere in Europe or you're going to fly somewhere in the Pacific. You're still talking, you know, anywhere from, I'd say, 18 to 36 hours of a sortie. That's what you're, you're going to fly in the mission. Uh, so you have a lot of You're awake that long? You're not awake the whole time. And you don't have to be, right? So, again, this is sort of something that we practice a lot in the B-2 um, and, and all the strategic bombers. But you're going to get airborne. You have certain sort of points, right, air refueling. So let's say you have four air refuelings planned, right, one every six hours or something like that, four to six hours. Um, then you have your weapons employment, then you come back, and then you're going to land. So we, one, we practice that a lot. We have um, an exercise physiologist or a flight physiologist that kind of talks about, hey, how do you manage your nutrition and your sleep cycle such that you are in your best performance state for the high performance things like air refueling, weapons employments, et cetera. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so we do that. We also have tested pills, go pills. So we might take go pills. Some people like them. Some people do not. I do not like go pills. Um, you might talk about using, um, you know, caffeine and that kind of stuff, hydration when we do that. But we spend a lot of time practicing long durations, right? We do it almost every year. A B2 pilot is required to fly a long duration mission so that they are comfortable doing that. Um, and we'll have talked about, you know, nutrition and all of those sleep cycles and stuff like that. We, keep, we have a little space behind the two pilots where you can set up a cot or some people just set up like a little air mattress that you can sleep. Okay. And so we'll kind of trade off. That's where the snacks are stored, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, we have food. We, you have food. I mean, it's like camping, right? Everyone brings these huge coolers with their food and eats and stuff like that. So we do a pretty good job. It's just two of us in the aircraft, so it's not overly difficult to manage. Mm-hmm. Hey, real quick, hope you're enjoying the episode. If you are, could you do me a favor and follow and leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and also follow the show on Instagram at 4.the.zoomies to see clips of upcoming episodes and stay engaged with the community. Thanks for your ongoing support. Without getting into anything classified, was there ever a sortie that like you found especially entertaining or on the flip side, boring that you could maybe share? Uh, I, well, yeah, it does get kind of boring, right? Like the Pacific is ridiculously big, like ridiculous. And I can remember, and I flew B1s too. I don't know if I told you that, but I also flew B1s. Uh, and I can remember my first sort of like trans-Pacific sortie in the B1. And I remember just like this. <laughs> stinks and I was a co-pilot so I was gonna do a lot of the boring stuff and um, I remember like we were approaching Wake Island and, and we were like for an hour we were like we're almost to Wake Island and I remember like being so excited to see land and then we pass it you know and then we're like okay like the next thing's Guam and you know it's like hours so I you know I think it probably gives us um, a sense of um, understanding better for our mobility fleet like just the vastness which they cross our globe on a daily basis um so yeah so they they can be very boring um, but i've done some exciting sorties right um sorties where we have flown up into europe um done sort of show of forces for our allies um b2 is not the primary one to do that right our b52s and our b1s do that almost on a weekly basis where they are flying in some places that you know are highly contentious, right? Um, South China Sea, East China Sea, um, Black Sea, the Balkans area, um, Arctic Circle, um, doing all kinds of things, rejoining. We send our bombers all over the globe. They get right up next to sometimes Russian airspace or Chinese airspace, right up to it, and then turn around. Um, they'll get um, intercepted by um, Russian aircraft or Chinese aircraft and you know sometimes they're professional sometimes they're less than professional mm-hmm. um, rejoin so yeah we do this a lot the B2 we're not going to do that too often with but I will tell you that it will make you nervous when you have an emergency with the B2 and you're someplace where you're like I might have to land this in a less than um, ideal location right I, I really don't want to land the B2 somewhere because I have all kinds of classified things on that that I need to be careful about and the more you show a stealthy aircraft then the less stealthy it becomes in the long range just because they learn about it right like because people have opportunities to look at it with radars etc so we're really careful about that we do not like to put the b2 in places where people can get looks on the radar for it and that's why you have b52s and b1s right send them out there so we often say that a B-52 is like an aircraft carrier. Like, you want to use it, show it off, flash it around, you know. And then a B-2 is more like a submarine. Like, they're silent, quiet, keep them back because we just don't want to highlight where they are and what they're doing because that loses some of its stealth capability and its its ability later down the road. Mm-hmm. 
What do you ever do to pass the time on those long stories? Is it just like story time with your co-pilot? Or? No, 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 because usually the other person will be back sleeping or oh, reading okay. a book or whatever, right? Like you're going to – you want to split that up as much as you can so that they're back relaxing so you're kind of doing that. Um, I don't know. A lot you're just looking at, I guess, <laughs> in the ocean. Um, big, deep thoughts about life. Um, <laughs> Yeah, because you're not going to like, in the B2, we don't have auto throttles, so I have to be really careful about my speed, right? I only have a 0.1 Mach, like low, less than 0.7 Mach, and I could stall the aircraft, and then I overspeed it at 0.8 Mach. So I don't have a, I don't need to be watching that. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, not too much. Now, in the B1, all kinds of fun, because you have a crew of four, and um, like our whizzos would set up movies in the back, <laughs> or, you know what I mean? We'd play Trivia Pursuit and stuff, and more fun stuff like that. Uh, B2 is maybe a little less fun. I guess you could chit chat with your co pilot, but you know, on longer sorties, you're probably just one person's relaxing and you're not. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if that was like a, like a <laughs> podcast heavy time or. You know. No, you know what? We, uh, I'm sure that some people do listen to things, right? Music or whatever like that. I never did that. I just, I don't know, mm. just flew the plane. So one thing that was really interesting in my, because I did a, a, a little bit of research on, on the B2 before I, ca- I came to this interview, they, they rely heavily on stealth in that because it's penetrating, there mm-hmm. aren't going to be, um, you know, uh, escorts or it's, it's just like they go in hopefully don't get seen and then leave without getting seen, hopefully. What is that like as that's your only defense? Like, they don't have chaff flares or nothing. That's correct. We do not have um, the ability. It's sort of like a defensive ability the way that um, other people might, right? Like mm-hmm. a B-1 or a B-52. Um, but I, here's what I would say. One, uh, we're not alone and unafraid. Now, nobody might be around me, but there are other things, kinetic and non-kinetic, that are providing support while we're in theater. So uh, it, it's true that I'm not going to, um, like, once we go into a penetration mode, we're not going to want to transmit on the radio. and right, We're going to be as silent as we can because we don't want any emissions coming off of us. Um, and I want to fly in a certain way that minimizes people seeing me and maneuvering mm-hmm. and all those kinds of things. But I'm not alone. I know means in my life. Um, we have cyber. We have space. We have other aircraft providing support um, the whole time. So what I would say is like it's sometimes people think alone and unafraid, and I say no, it's absolute nonsense. There's no way B two is going anywhere alone and unafraid. It's going to have all kinds of support. It just doesn't look like two F-15s on my wing. Mm. Right. And even when we do plan, again, um, the stealth community, which includes the F-35 and the F-22, right? When we plan things uh, in that grouping, and it, that grouping is, is bigger than you might think, um, they're, they're just not going to be off your wings, right? They're going to be farther away. They're going to be executing things that you're just not able to see but mm-hmm. are all planned. So I want you guys, when you're thinking of future fight stuff, to always think about, like, it's no longer this, like, four ship flying in front of you and then you fly behind them. That's, like long ago that's decades and decades ago now things are happening they might not be around you but kinetic and non-kinetic things are happening to support you in that mission how does sound play into that that's one thing that always kind of confused me are you just high enough that they can't hear you or oh good question so the the airframe itself has a couple things so one if you um look at the aircraft the engines are actually embedded into the aircraft okay so what happens is the air comes in at the top and then it makes an s turn down and in Um, and then as it exits um it exits over like space shuttle like tiles so they dissipate heat really quick so one from a sound and from a heat perspective um our engines are down and in our engines being down and in make it really loud in the aircraft, by the way. Okay. It's like you can chit-chat. Uh, you can on the intercom, but you can't. It's too loud in there. Um, so, yes. And then while we're up high, it's 
the sound isn't the issue. It's radar cross-section. It's thermal indications. That's what we would be more worried about. Sound, you have to be within, you know, a couple miles to hear. Um, but that's considered, but not at altitude and certainly not at um, the way that the, in, the aircraft is made. Okay. But I'm more worried about radar cross-section and thermal indications. Okay. And remember, too, from stealth perspective, like the 80%, 70% of the stealth of that aircraft, of the B-2 specifically, is just the shape of the aircraft, mm -hmm. right? The, the, the form of the aircraft is what that flying wing uh, is, is stealthy. And that's like the miracle of the B-2, right? Mm -hmm. While it does need to retire and we need to move to the B-21, there's a lot of really cool engineering things that happened with the B-2, but that technology has has had its time and it needs to move on and we need to move to the B-21. But, you know, some of the fascinating things is how you did stealth with a rounded structure. That's pretty amazing, right? How we developed a pedostatic system without a pedotube on an aircraft. Right? I'm not Only sure static. what's pedo. Pedostatic looks at the difference between uh, moving aircraft. There, so that you ever look at the front of an aircraft and it has a thing on the nose, Ye a pedotube? Yeah, I think... Or yeah, 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 at least So look at the yeah. aircraft out on the terrazzo and you can see that. That's taking... Uh, error that's moving quickly there and then there's static ports on the side that look at the static air pressure and between that you can know your altitude and all that kind of stuff the b2 does not have a pedo tube on it it only has static ports mm -hmm. and so from a sort of a pedostatic systems that's a pretty amazing capability that the aircraft was able to kind of figure out um, there's several um, sort of engineering marvels that is the b2 and there will be several in the F-22 and the F-35 and the B-21. Like, these move down the, the path, but they don't last forever. You have to, mm -hmm. okay, next aircraft, we need to evolve, if you will. Mm -hmm. I guess it kind of leads into um, a question I got from Lance Weston. I talked to him the other day at the gym, and he, he kind of let me know that he wanted to know this about it. But what does the track look for the B-21, like, yeah. in, as the B-2 is kind of replacing it? Mm -hmm. Is it... Like, what would the career path kind of look yeah. like? What's the like, vector? Do you train or? on the B-2 and then you switch over? Or is it just no, straight to the B-21? that's B21? a great question. So um, I, the, what our bomber vector says from Air Force Global Strike Command is that we'll start to retire B B-1s, and then we'll bring on our B-21s. And then when we reach a certain number of B-21s, we start to retire our B-2s. Mm -hmm. And then we bring on more B-21s. The rest of the B-1s retire. The rest of the B-2s retire. And now you're just at B-21s and B-52s. So that's what our career. So you can be in any of the aircraft. I think one of the cool things about Air Force Global Strike Command from the bomber perspective is that I can fly B-52s and then I can transition over to B-1s or B-2s. Like um, we have found that the best complement of people are people that come from all the different uh, AFSCs and aircraft really. So like I love that about the B-2 is I would be flying with someone who had a C-17 background, KC-135 background, B-52 background, or was a FAPE or straight out of pilot training. I had B-1s. My husband was an F-15E pilot. Like we all came together and that was what the B-2 community was made up of. Mm -hmm. The B-21 community will be made up of all the bombers coming in, right? They'll all feed into the B-21 and then there'll be people from pilot training, probably cross-commission, or not cross-commissioning, cross-flowing from other aircraft. Like that's where you learn the best lessons. Mm -hmm. um, so the career path would probably look like, again, um, there'll be a couple people, maybe not by the time you guys finish pilot training, but in the next you know decade, people will be finishing pilot training and going into it. But other than that, if you wanted to fly a B-21, what I would say is, yeah, track select into, or not track select, select into the bomber field, and eventually you can work your way into the B-21. Okay. So does that still work out? I think I saw online that it said the... 
the service life of the B2 is supposed to last till 2040. Yeah, is that that's correct? That's about when we'll retire the last of the B2s. It might be a little bit before that, but yeah. Okay. It, it'd take a while to retire all the B2s and the B1s. And, and it's still up for a question. Like, if the B1 ends up getting a hypersonic or the X, Y, and Z happens with the B21, like, we may end up having to extend the service life of a B1 or a B2. Mm-hmm. Um, B2 is pretty darn expensive to fly, though. So I, it would be a cost analysis, I'm sure. Okay. Yeah, it kind of brings to mind the question of, hey, if we're getting rid of these two aircraft mm-hmm. that do vastly different missions, what does that say about? And I wouldn't say they do, like the B-1 and the B-52, though, I mean, they can accomplish things differently. Um, if you're just talking about like standoff and stand-in weapons, then you just need B-52s and B-21s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, there will be a, there will be new weapons also being developed. And like, there's a whole bunch of, um, Air Force Global Strike Command has vectors for those things. So they think about what does the future flight look like? What kind of weapons do I need? Will I be able to meet that? But um, it's, it's, I don't want you to think of it like, I'm going to lose these two capabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the objective things that they, they do can be handled by the B-52 and the B-21 fleet. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, yeah. that the B-21 must cover the bases probably and more of and both more, of those. Because the future fight's going to require new things, mm-hmm. and that's what it covers better than anybody else, mm-hmm. right? So think think about major, like, data, fusing data, all those kind of things. Like, that's really important in the future fight, and mm-hmm. they'll be able to do that far better than what these platforms can do. Mm-hmm. This one comes from my buddy Finn, Finn Gowan. Um, he says, "What what's the stress like to fly such an expensive asset? That, Finn, great question. Um, that used to be like something I'd say to somebody on their first flight. Uh, I was the FTU commander for a, a while, and I used to say like, okay, we're about to taxi out of this hangar or something like that. Like, I want you to keep in mind that this thing that you're taxiing right now is more than any um, aircraft carrier. It's not true anymore. <laughs> we now we have more expensive aircraft. But this is more than an aircraft carrier. So if we do any damage, um, it's going to cost like millions of dollars, which is true. It really like if I get a boom strike on the top of a B two, which is not infrequent um, to for a boom to kind of hit the top of the aircraft, like at a minimum of like eighty thousand dollars. Wow, it. that's really expensive. So you are very very nervous. I will not lie. It's very it's nerve wracking. Has there ever been any like? Terrible, yeah, ground accidents, you bet. It's really unfortunate, too, because, you know, accidents do happen. But when you're an air, you know, like an air crew member or whatever, particularly if you're the aircraft commander, if you get into some kind of ground accident on the ground, like, it's your fault. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know, the accountability has, there must be. It's your, it's on you. And there's many, I mean, and I have been in accidents and I have been part of or the aircraft commander. You know, I was struck by lightning once. And even in your though, aircraft? In the aircraft, in the B-2, it blew a huge hole out one of my wings. Um uh, and even if I had followed all the rules, which I did, and you know tried to avoid this uh, incident, it still happened, and that's still 100% my fault. 100% my fault. Mm-hmm. So I went through you know uh, investigation and everything to ensure you know, that I had done the right procedures. Otherwise, I can be held accountable, and I should be held accountable on the aircraft commander. Yeah, it blew a huge hole out there. I was probably million. That aircraft was down for weeks while they had to fix it. Oh my god. Yeah, I know maintenance 24/7 on on that aircraft I felt terrible you feel terrible you know what I mean you just mm. like caused an issue for another uh, teammate and it's terrible yeah it's not a happy time for me <laughs> I can't imagine yeah. that you know I, <laughs> a lot I'll tell him and I think it's true for any aircraft like you, you it breaks your heart to have damaged anything um, but yeah for a two billion dollar aircraft like it's, it hurts maybe a little bit more mm-hmm. for sure and there's only 20 of them so that you know you take one of those out of the mix that impacts the whole fleet 
hard. Really? Yeah. There was 21 built. We did have a crash. So now we only have 20. That's it. No more. 20 V2s. That's all you have in. Wow. That's, that's really interesting. I recently read this article on the merger. It's like a military uh, contracting um, newsletter. And it was going over how, you know, the U.S., China, and Russia are the only countries that have strategic bombers. Yeah. And it, it, it was heavily dependent on, obviously, these are extremely expensive assets. But do, do you know why, like, we're the only three? Is it just because we're global superpowers or what leads us these three countries are to be the only ones that have strategic bombers well you're right it's a very expensive endeavor to have right and and again if i can reiterate um from a strategic bomber perspective we we are not comparable at all like we are what we have more aircraft a much more capable tanker fleet to enable that aircraft right Mm -hmm. that number and more capable aircraft so again the you know the chinese are gaining particularly in their um uh uh, cruise missile capability um but their bomber fleet is not anywhere comparable to our bomber fleet Um, the russians have the blackjacks which look a lot like b1s shockingly and the bears which look like prop B-52s, shockingly. Um, and they have them in numbers, but not like our numbers. And their tanker availability to sort of not even close. But for the threats that they're looking at, that makes sense, right? We want to deliver the um, – we want to be in their – we want to play away games, right? You hear that kind of – it sounds cliche, but it is 100% true from our strategy. We I don't, don't want, want you yeah. coming here. Yeah. I don't want you reach out. I want to make sure I always have a fleet that can reach out and do that, right? And we do that with long-range strike aircraft, but we also do that with our Navy, right? Our Navy has massive power projection capability, um, and obviously Army and Marine Corps, too, with their sort of ability to sustain operations and be expeditionary. So that's U.S. strategy. Like, invest in those things. Play the away game. Don't ever let it be a home game. And that's really important. Mm-hmm. They also, uh, if you think about it from the perspective, they invest more in ballistic missiles. Um, so that's why you see some ballistic missile defense issues that we have recently sort of ooh, been, been concerned about, particularly mm-hmm. the Army, who is responsible for that ballistic missile defense capability. Um, but that's why. So, yes, do they have bombers? Yes. Do they have bombers like we have bombers? No, not even close. Do they have some great cruise missiles, both the countries? Yeah. Do we think there's a hypersonic capability? Yeah. But they don't have the vastness nor the capability that we have mm-hmm. they're playing more of a home game that's that's interesting because i i asked a similar question to lieutenant colonel conover who's a yeah. missileer aoc here and i don't think this i think i think i asked it before we started recording but china has the plarf we don't have like that's integrated throughout the air force and the navy as a pilot of a bomber a strategic mm-hmm. bomber that that plays a significant enough role that you know our bomber presence is more or either equivalent or more important than having such a strong rocket force. Yeah, sort of like a ballistic missile. Mm -hmm. This is a real argument that gets made back and forth, particularly with the Army, who would own a conventional ballistic missile capability more. And then, say, the Navy and the Air Force, who have been doing long-range strike. So we went down the path of long-range bombers and, you know what I mean, deploy power projection capabilities with our submarines and our, right? So we have submarines that are very capable of launching conventional ballistic missiles and, you know, anywhere in the globe. And so, yeah, we sort of made that argument. Um, you'll see 
countries like China or Russia or Iran, right, they invest more in the ballistic missiles and drone technology. Their air forces look different than what our air forces mm -hmm. do. It, there is a good argument to be made. What I'd say is we have gone down this path far enough that it, it doesn't make any sense to, like, stop, retract, and then try and go a different path, right? Mm -hmm. Like, no, we have very capable aircraft and power projection capabilities across all the services. Like, why would we invest now, like detract from that and then use ballistic missiles. Next question, I have to pull it up because it was a kind of long one from um, Josh Yao. Okay. Hold on. Let's see. So he, he shortened it, but I want to make sure I give you the, long, the, the okay. long form of the question. So it says, in today's battlefield with everything technologically integrated does the b2 become more of a bottom card in terms of asserting less advanced weaponry like regular gbus and nuclear bombs with b52 deploying more advanced weapons like the alcm that doesn't require flying flying into an airspace that's high in deniability it says or in other terms is the b2 the one to finish the job when all high-tech options fail hmm. um I'll just say this, the, the B-2 and the B-52, they have capabilities, um, both high-tech and lower-tech, if you from, from a weapons delivery perspective. I think the reason the B-2, the, the technology, the stealthiness of it, the survivability of the B-2 is the thing that is just at risk, right? It's a, a low observable platform where radars have made huge advance, advances. And so, um, again, it's pretty capable against a lot of radars. And now there are new radars that it's not so capable against. And unfortunately, those radars um, are in areas that we would like to hold at risk targets. And so I don't think that, um, that the B-2 is, is from the weapons that it delivers, right? It can do, you know, air, air launch cruise missiles. It's funny that he would say air launch cruise missiles because air launch cruise missiles are pretty low tech. They're pretty old tech. Mm -hmm. um, JASM and some of those sort of cruise missile-like things, or if you think about um, from the Navy Navy's perspective, they do TLAMs, which are pretty high-tech high um, cruise missiles. Yeah, we have incredible capability um, to do that JASM, and, and all of our bombers can, and, and our fighters, most of our fighters can carry JASM. So the weaponry and the aircraft matchup are probably not the concern. Okay. It's the aircraft themselves. If I have a penetrating responsibility, uh, are there radars there that cause me concern? Do I have to use support assets to deny or degrade those capabilities such that I can still penetrate? And what we're seeing more and more is it takes more and more and more support to enable the B-2 to give in. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? And that's what leads you to go, okay, that means that I need to figure out a new solution into this problem, right? Because that's all warfighting really is. You develop a technology, I counter your technology. I develop a technology, you counter that. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Radar is a good example, and then we, you know, we, we work our way through radars and better radars, computer capability, um, AI, hypersonics. Like This is how this game gets played. You develop something, I counter it. I develop something, you counter that. Mm -hmm. I guess this is uh, to round it out. Are there any misconceptions? I don't talk a lot about bombing or the bomber fleet in, in general, so I don't know that much. Sure. If there are, you know, stereotypes or misconceptions that are commonly kind of thrown out am amongst the wing or RTC de detachments, yeah. but you know, are, do you think that there are any 
uh, misconceptions that I can don't be know shot that down. there's misconceptions in the cadet wing because like you said it's a pretty small community mm-hmm. right like um, if I look at the number of pilots and um, CISOs in the bomber community um, I think we are equivalent to like AFSOC right okay. it's just a pretty small the bomber fleet is, is fairly small unlike say the mobility command or fighter command or even like our ISR um, platforms so it's probably pretty small people's uh, ability to meet or see bomber pads but um, there is a miss um, sort of misapplication of um bomber people from say like the 1950s and 60s right so that's when sac even 70s and 80s sac existed and you know it for very good reason it had to be extremely regimented and very difficult and global strike command um today is not sac Mm -hmm. Uh, we have a huge conventional mission and also a very important nuclear mission um i will just say this like the bomber community over the last two decades was very busy applying lessons of counterterrorism. And I think they proved, particularly the B-1 and the B-52, proved its value in large payloads in fairly uncontested environments being able to handle things, right? It really Mm -hmm. did that. But unfortunately, while they were focused on that, they lost sight of, we as a country lost sight of the real strategic problem out there, which is the rise of China and the the conflicts of Russia. And so we need our strategic bombers to like refocus. So if anything, I would say um, a reckoning with what we bring to the table is the sort of the the misconstrued uh, bomber community which is um you know not to sound uh, you know denigrating to any other career field but we we cannot move a bomber outside of the united states without the secretary of defense saying you can move that bomber mm-hmm. i can move fighters all the time i can move mobility aircraft all the time i cannot move those guys and i know because i was a 608th aoc commander without explicit approval from the senior leader of the Department of Defense. It's just too important of a strategic asset for us to move. Um, and so we think differently because that's sort of, in my opinion, the bishop and the rook. Like that that's the, that thing, right? It's not mm-hmm. a pawn, it's the bishop or a rook. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the value of them, you're gonna see change. I think the value of some of our mobility assets and our ISR assets, you're gonna see change, right? I think the idea that you know these certain aircraft are the most important is probably misplaced when we're talking about the future fight because you're gonna see a more rounded out um, plan of maneuver. Hmm. I mean, I got, I got some stuff to research uh, after this episode. But, yeah. <laughs> um, lastly, is there any unique advice that you'd be willing to give um, cadets that are looking to commission? Oh, absolutely. Um, well, I think from commissioning, like the the name of the game is the grind. Just keep <laughs> going. Do you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. one foot, the next foot. Um, every day is a grind. But I'll tell you, pilot training was a grind. Sometimes flying a B two was a grind. Like it can be a grind, and I completely understand that. But the fact of the matter is, you get up every day and you just get through it and then you get through the next day and what you'll find in my opinion in the air force is that there'll be good times and there'll be less than good times and you just get through them sometimes and and you enjoy the good times and you get through the not so good times right they have been amazing deployments that i've been on that i've had so much fun and there have been miserable deployments that i've been on and you make the best of it and and move through it so i'd say one the name of the game is learning to just get through the grind right i know that's really difficult at your age and and uh, this place can be difficult so <laughs> You're actually learning skills for life that are more valuable than you might know. This is my second piece of advice. Before the age of 40, the answer to every question is yes. Do you want to do soaring? Yes. Do you want to do jump? Yes. Would you like to do a foreign exchange program? Yes. Would you like to go to grad school? Would you like to be a pilot or be a scissor? Like, yes. The answer is yes. 
every opportunity you can take before the age of 40, I would say yes to. After the age of 40, I'd recommend saying no because you probably have figured out what works and what doesn't work for you. But um, you have no idea what you're going to like in the Air Force. You have no idea what you're going to like in the Academy. And I can think of no place, at least in the Air Force, but probably in the country that gives you more opportunities, right? Like there's just, I've done a million things here that I would not have done had I gone to a regular university. And so you should take advantage of those because you don't know what you're going to like. I didn't know I was going to like flying until I started flying. I mm -hmm. didn't know that I would, you know, have the opportunity to go to graduate school or what, like until I was just said yes and went down several paths. Um, and so take advantage of those. Just say yes to everything. And I think you'll find that the things that you thought you might not like, you actually enjoy. And the things that you thought you might enjoy, you don't. But you wouldn't know unless you kind of just said yes to everything. Mm -hmm. So take advantage of that. Well, Colonel Macros, I really appreciate your time. Taking time out of a busy day has been a great, insightful episode. So thank you for your time. Well, thanks, Andrew. I appreciate you having me on.